Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, one of the blessings of preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse is that you have the opportunity uh, to go back and say things that you think may not have been as clear as you'd like them to be. And I, and I just want to do that now. Uh, I just want to continue to reiterate that the topic of forgiveness is vast. And we certainly haven't answered every question there is about it because we're not doing a topical study. I put the bulletin insert that was in there last week about the eight myths about forgiveness. I hope you'll read that if you haven't. Read it with your spouse, read it with a friend. It's super helpful, I think, to give us some of the myths about forgiveness. Um, this at least adds to some of our understanding of some of the things about forgiveness that we haven't covered. And I think it'd be helpful, again, if you read that with someone else. Along with that, I just want to say again that we're talking chiefly about the slights and the oversights that happen in a normal body of Christ, just like in a normal family. That's the context of where we are in the book of Colossians. We're not talking here at all about the kind of forgiveness that one has to work through if they're habitually abused or, or if they're habitually mistreated or maybe if you know a loved one who's been habitually abused or mistreated. I did say that part of bearing and forgiving is simply letting go of our complaints toward one another, but I don't think I would use that same statement when serious abuse has taken place. And again, I just don't think the passage is directly speaking about that, so we haven't gone that path. This is not talking about confrontable, rebukable, um, crime-committing, church-discipline-type sin. Now, if you're interested in further encouragement about for having a forgiving spirit for those major offenses, let me encourage you to do a little research online uh, about the story of Corey Tenboom. Some of you might be familiar with her story. She was in a Nazi concentration camp, and she's written and spoken widely. I think she died in 1983. Um, but she's working about, worked through how God has worked in her heart over the years to be able to come to the place where she could forgive the prison guards, and one guard in particular, who had abused her and some of the female prisoners and her sister, uh, and even caused her sister's death, uh, who died just weeks before, a few days before they're actually freed. It'd be grossly insensitive to me, for me to look at someone who's gone through what she's gone through and say, just let it go. There's a process of forgiveness in and through Christ that can and does take place in the lives of individuals 
who have been horribly abused, where by God's grace, they don't live in bitterness. And if I've perked up your interest in Corey Ten Boom, um, her, her book and movies called The Hiding Place, uh, you could read that or take a look at that. I think it'd be a blessing to you. But again, this is not dealing with those kinds of issues, and I just want to make that clear. Along with that, just as a personal observation, um, some struggle with forgiveness uh, more than others. It doesn't change the command. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, some people live their lives like water off of a duck's back. Others um, takes longer to work through forgiveness and to work through forbearance and to work through the slights and offenses of others. And that's just part of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, allowing people the freedom to grow at the pace they're at uh, as we're all conforming to the image of God. So that's a little P.S. from last week um, that I wish I would have said, uh, but I didn't. And uh, if I forget anything today, the next Sunday, I will go ahead and do a P.S. again. So again, that's the beauty of preaching through something chronologically. So we're back in Colossians 3. I, I just want you to see now how Paul has not finished telling us what to put on. We're almost dressed. Hopefully we're wearing uh, a compassionate heart. We put on kindness. We put on humility. And we put on meekness. You know, we put on patience, forbearance, forgiveness. We're, we're forgiving others and bearing with the complaints we have against them. And all of this purpose behind it is to maintain unity in the body of Christ. But there's still at least three things missing from our wardrobe. Uh, Paul says, says we have to put on love. We have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we have to be thankful. And these three final qualities and characteristics of the Lord Jesus are absolutely essential for unity in the church. So in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul begins with a phrase, above all these. Now the word above here can be translated beyond or over. And the idea is not so much stating that love is above and disconnected from these qualities. Rather, it means more like it sits on top Love is the binding factor holding all of these qualities together. Love is what makes everything else usable. You can say it's kind of the glue that binds all the other things in Colossians together. It's, it's a connectedness so the body of Christ can live in that perfect harmony. It's silly illustration. It's, it's macaroni and cheese. I mean, the macaroni sits all disjointed and connected. But when you have that ooey, gooey, oozy cheese all over it and mix it all together, then it binds it together and, and above anything else makes it taste really good. But it's also all intertwined and all interconnected. That's what love does. And you see it even more clearly in the phrase, Paul goes on to say, which binds everything together. It means to be fastened, connected tissue in the human body or, or parts of a ship that are fastened together. So love laying on top of or overseeing all these other qualities is what brings them together and achieves, Paul says, uh, perfect unity and perfect harmony. It binds everything together. And the idea behind perfect harmony has to do with being without blemish or defect. It's, it's the full development of the Christian life. It's obedience and belief and even full maturity or completeness. Beloved, this is... This is this what this means is, is that our living out the command to put on love over all these other Christ-like qualities in our lives 
will be the, the determining factor in our maturity as a congregation, as a church. Or you can say it this way, without the kind of love we're commanded to demonstrate to one another, then a church will never be unified, a church will never develop, a church will never mature, and, and so the idea of putting on love is just not an option. And, there, and there's really no way to get out of the command for at least two reasons. One is because of the other commands in Scripture that tell us how to love and who to love, and then secondly, because of the very definition of the word love, which we'll come back to in a minute. I mean, there are commands all over Scripture telling us who we're supposed to love. Romans 12.10, we're to love one another. First uh, Peter 2.17, we are to love the brethren. So just look around the room for a minute. Turn around. Just look at each other just for a minute. Just look around. I mean, you always look at me. Look around a little bit. Turn around. These are the people that you're commanded to love. Love the brethren. Love one another. Um, Mark 12.31 says we're commanded to love our neighbor. And of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan would indicate that our neighbor isn't someone necessarily that lives in proximity to us, but rather our neighbor would be someone who has a need that we could meet, especially those who are outside the body of Christ and even outside our own social circles. So our neighbor literally is everyone. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, husbands are commanded to love their wives. Interestingly, in Titus 2, older women are told to train younger women to love their husbands and love their children. So we have to com we're commanded to love our wives, but for some reason our wives have to be trained to love us. Now we'll deal with that when we get to Colossians 3, but that's maybe we're just harder to love, so you guys got to go through a training process to love us. But we'll deal with that a little bit later. Matthew 5, 44, we're commanded to love our enemies. So when you think of draping love over all these qualities, it's just affirming the other commands in Scripture for who we are to love. We're to love everybody in society because everyone fits somewhere in these commands. They're either from the church, they're either from the outside world, they're from our own family, uh, and even people who are our enemies. We, we're to love everybody. Jesus states that it's easy to love those who love you. There's no reward in that. So love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus made it very clear. Why don't you turn to, to John 13 for a moment. In John 13, in the upper room discourse, as Jesus is spending the last hours, last days with his disciples, uh, in the upper room discourses from John 13 through John 17, uh, the night that he had the Lord's Supper and then the night he was going to be betrayed, he makes it very clear about what love is supposed to look like. In John 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love one for another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And much like the command to forgive, because our Heavenly Father has forgiven us, we're to love because our Heavenly Father loves us, and we are to love each other the way the Lord Jesus loves us. And our love for one another here at Grace Fellowship 
according to the text, should be noticeable to the unsaved world around us. So putting on love, which binds us together in perfect harmony, draping over hearts of compassion and kindness and meekness and so on, and ultimately all of that is one of the main reasons when we do that well that we witness the gospel to those who don't know Christ. Because Jesus is saying that all people will know. All people will know. The nations will know. Those who, who don't attend church here in Gladwin or Clare or West Branch, wherever, they will know that we're disciples of Jesus if they come and hear good preaching. Well, no, it, do, it doesn't say that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can speak with tongues of men and angels, but if you do not have love, then you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Some might think that all the unsaved people around us will know that we're Christ's disciples if they come in and hear great worship music, or we have a great kids' ministry, or we have Sunday school or whatever. But the way others, Jesus says, will know that we are followers of Christ is if we have love for one another. Our testimony as believers of harmony and unity is essential to our witness to the outside world. Listen to just a couple different commentaries of this verse in John 13. One writer writes, Lovelessness among believers nullifies their witness to the world and reveals them as hypocrites. Another one. God allows the world to judge whether people are truly Jesus' disciples by the way they behave toward one another. Sadly, the church has not done very well on this point. Perhaps this accounts for some of the struggles the gospel has had for almost 2,000 years. And then thirdly, the measure in which Christian people fail to love, the measure in which Christian people fail in love to each other is the measure in which the world does not believe in them or their Christianity. Their love for each other is the final test of discipleship, according to Jesus. Those are strong words. Factions and divisions, a lack of unity and a lack of love for one another in churches destroys their witness to the community around them. Now, as I think through and has heard the history of our church, there was one major split at Grace Fellowship that I'm aware of for the right reasons. Grace Fellowship had its own reformation about two decades ago, and the church's theological position moved uh, to a more reformed, sovereign grace approach to sovereignty and salvation and the scriptures. And at that time period, as I understand it, many in the church left. So splits over doctrine do happen. We're not talking about that. But apart from that incident, what we have to ask, and I think not just us, every church has to ask the question, has our love for one another, has our unity, has our harmony, our oneness over the years proved to the greater community that we, in fact, are followers of the Lord Jesus? Or has a lack of love and a lack of unity and a lack of harmony account for some of the struggle we've had to see the gospel go forward in power? I think that's the question that's being raised here. You know, when visitors come, when unsaved people come into a church building, 
the unity and the harmony and the love that a church family has for one another, it should be evident. I think it's the same in marriage. When, when a husband and wife really love one another, live in harmony together, care for one another, it, it's obvious, I think, no matter where they go. They could be at Walmart shopping. They could be going to dinner. They could be at someone else's house for dinner or even at home. There's something about that couple that has maintained a love and unity over the decades that, that's palpable, that's noticeable, and that's a blessing to others. When you see that older couple holding hands up Walmart, I shouldn't say that. I've been married 40 years. I'm that older couple now. <laughs> I'm that older. But when, <laughs> that took me by surprise, didn't it? <laughs> At the same time, along with that, when you're around couples where there's no harmony and there's no unity and there's nothing but insults, um, it's, it's a struggle. Nothing attractive about that. You know, Sunday mornings when we gather, as love is draped over all these other Christ-like qualities, how we act toward others, there should be a genuine draw and attraction. And when those who come in the building that don't have Christian roots and haven't been to church much, they should really sense it. When we gather as a congregation, our love for one another should be the first evangelistic draw before the words preached. For those of you who are old like me, the 70s song, uh, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And hopefully that's what moves us as we gather together on Sundays to touch base and say hello and, and, and our weekly gatherings. Even today, they're family reunions that help us to keep in touch and hope they springboards for more contact during the week. Now, again, we say this almost every week now that COVID makes this more complex. But, but this is our love for one another should move us to say hello to visitors and invite them to lunch and welcome them. And, and, and I do see that happening, praise the Lord. And, and I pray that it continues to happen even more and more. You know, if a church has to create, and some churches do this, if you have to create a welcoming committee of, of four people, that there's a designated welcomers every week, oftentimes you're just forcing something that doesn't exist because we want that to be organic. And if we love one another and we're unified and living in harmony, then that will flow out to those who are coming in and they won't be able to miss it. Now, if I were where you are right now, I'd be, I'd be saying, you know, Rick, this is great. Um, if I could raise my hand in the service, the first question I want to ask is, Rick, that's all wonderful, but wh what do you mean by love? I mean, I looked around once already. I looked at everyone. Do I gotta have ooey gooey, mushy feelings for all these people who are here this morning? Is that what you're saying? I got up late. I didn't have breakfast. Lunch is coming. I'm hangry. I'm hungry. I'm angry. And you're asking me to be mushy and gooey and, and, and everything else to these people around me. When the reality is, I'd be happy to help them in any way possible at any time, and I do it because it's right not because I have strong emotions toward them. If that was your answer, I'd say, well, you just described biblical love. Happy to help them, anytime, anyway, because it's right. We think of love being this strong feeling of affection, yet the word for love that we're to put on in Colossians 3 has more to do with our actions than our feelings. 
It's the same word that Paul uses to define love in 1 Corinthians 13, which I know you're familiar with, but go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 13. Most of you know the the word used here is the Greek word agape. It's a love that's defined as unconditional and sacrificial. It's not dependent upon the behavior of the person loved or receiving love in return. It's not based on pleasant emotions or physical affection, but it's an act of self-sacrifice. It's a love that gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It's a benevolent love that gives even when it doesn't receive back. And that's why it's called unconditional and sacrificial. Now what's described here is is the kind of action that binds the church of Jesus Christ in perfect harmony. What's described here is the glue, the binding agent behind unity, and it's Christ-like and self-sacrificing. Now, as I read from 1 Corinthians 13, you're going to see right away that this is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I do read it, beginning in verse 4, I'm going to insert his name there where the word love is so you can see what I mean. Uh, Verse 4, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never ends. Now, the reason why I wanted to read it that way is because the commandment to put on love or to put on the new self is equivalent to the commandment we said before to put on Christ. So when we're commanded to put on love, we're being commanded to wear the attributes of Christ or act like Christ and live like Christ toward one another. And we can, we said, because Christ lives in us and we live in him, and he's given us the power to do it. Now, you may not remember this, but we looked at this passage in, in, in detail uh, quite a while ago when we did a study on what is the church, so I don't want to, to re-explain everything that we already said. Um, just to help you, I put four translations in your bulletin of this particular passage. You can see where certain translations uh, will explain some of the phrases a little bit differently. I just leave that to you for your own benefit, uh, just so to expand some of the definitions, because I don't want to go into great detail. But let me say first that love is an action, and we know that because all of these qualities are, are verbs. Verbs are action words. Verbs are commands. They're not feeling words. They're not adjectives. And the verb form also implies continuous action. And this action is not dependent upon the surrounding circumstances or the people. Now, from a a big picture standpoint, what I want to do is look at this passage through the lens of what we're going to drape over to cover all the things that we've already put on from from Colossians 3. And to put it another way, we're going to allow Christ to live in us and through us. And by living out this definition of love, This is what will bind us together 
in perfect harmony. That's going to where we're going. There's like 16 total qualities here of love, eight positive, eight negative. The whole passage, uh, again, is what we're going to drape over, what we're wearing. Uh, you might have a sense when we're done that I tried to give you a drink of water through a fire hose. Uh, so nothing will apply to everybody, but I hope something will apply to you. And pray the Spirit of God shows us both where we need to do better, where we're already functioning okay, and where we can grow. So the ultimate goal here is harmony in the church. And the assumption is we already have all of these things on. So on top of all this, verse 4 says, tells us that love is patient and love is kind. So to maintain unity, Paul's just telling us we need to be continually patient and continually kind. Now we already have that on though. We, we already supposedly are wearing patience and wearing kindness from what we saw in Colossians 3. So at first it might seem redundant. Why do I have to have another layer of patience? Why do I have to have another layer of, of, of kindness? I don't think it's redundant. I think it just shows how impatient we are with each other and how oftentimes how unkind we are with each other. So I think a double layer is really what we need. I need to be doubly patient with you. You need to be doubly patient with each other and with me. It's so easy. It's so easy to snap at each other. It's so easy to be defensive with each other. It's so easy to say something that you might regret later. So easy to be impatient and then subsequently unkind. Our impatient responses to our brothers and sisters in Christ and even family members, it just makes that person feel so small. And our unkindness does the exact same thing. And harmony in the church comes when even our expressions toward one another are done with patience and kindness. And when they're not, you know and I know, there can be no unity in that relationship. Now, now notice after seeing that love is patient and kind, Paul gives a series of seven things that love is not. I'm just going to lump them all together and call these seven, seven deadly unity killers. Seven deadly unity killers. Look at verse 4. And here, all seven are right here. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. If you want to see unity in the church destroyed, then just envy one another. The one who, who envies not only wants something that someone else has, he doesn't want that person to have it anymore. This just destroys unity because the one who envies, he cannot rejoice in the blessings of others. I've, see, I've seen in some churches where if someone's going to go on a nice vacation, they, they don't tell anyone what they're doing or where they're going because they're, they know that people in the church will be envious that they went on a cruise or they went to Hawaii or wherever it might be. The envious person is not content, so they cannot share in anyone else's joy. And when people know that, then they just stop talking and they just stop sharing. And the church suffers because relationships are no longer open and they're just superficial. If you don't envy others because maybe you don't need what they have, then you can destroy the church, the unity of the church, by boasting about what you have or what you're doing or your accomplishments. 
Now, this doesn't have to be material things either. This could relate to positions in the church, ministries, friendships, whatever it might be. But envying others and boasting about yourself, both of these are unity killers. But by putting on love, by putting on Christ, living a life of contentment with his provision, then you can rejoice in the blessings of the people around you. And knowing that you, all that you have is from him, then you know there's no reason to boast. Along with that arrogance and rudeness, these are unity killers, aren't they? The word arrogant means you have an exaggerated sense of your own self-importance and ability. Emphasis on exaggerated and self-importance. Maybe you're not boasting about it, but you just, you just feel like you're better than everyone around you. When everything is about you, you just can't be unified with others, especially when you view others as less than you are. Arrogant people most of the time are also self-righteous people. Self-importance is a unity killer. But, but so is rudeness, isn't it? Rudeness will destroy unity in the church. It means to be offensively impolite or have bad manners, violating established social norms. There are even secular writers that are saying that the loss of manners and, and rudeness in a culture is a sign that the culture is dying. Now, if you've been to Walmart and you have a cart in your hands, you know what I'm talking about. How many times have you been going down the, 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 the aisle and someone comes at you and you have better move because they're not going to say, excuse me. They're just going to run you out of the aisle. The, the, the idea of, excuse me, would you mind if I get by? Oh, sure, no problem. I'm sorry. Well, let, let, me, let me move. I think that's from generations ago. No one says things like that anymore. They try and sneak by you and ram your cart into the aisle. The rudeness in the culture. And when rudeness is in the church, those are signals that it's dying or dead. You know, we need, we need to have a culture here. And, and, I, and I think to a large degree we do, but we can always do better. A culture of please and thank you and eye contact and how are you doing and can I pray for you and deferring to one another and helping and thank you notes and thank you texts. We, of all people, as Christian believers, filled with the Holy Spirit, we should be the most mannerly to one another. A well-mannered congregation helps Bind believers together in perfect harmony because it emulates the Lord Jesus and his love. Now in verse 5, there's three more unity killers, and I'll just read each of them from a different translation on your sheet. You'll kill unity in a church if you insist on your own way, if you get angry easily, and if you keep a ledger of all the wrongs committed against you. Now, this is not new to anybody. Uh, these are no-brainers. Anyone in the church who has a reputation for always getting their own way is probably the one who's running the church. They don't cooperate with anyone. And typically over time, nobody wants to work with that person any, anymore. For us to live out his commands together as a corporate body, nobody is supposed to insist on their own way. Now, there are times there are leaders who have to lead and there are people who have to follow. And sometimes there are folks in groups 
who have super strong opinions. We never want to squelch that. We love opinions. We love thoughts. We love dialogue. We love conversation. Even if it gets loud from time to time, it's great to have the conversation, to speak the truth to, 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 to one another. However, at some point, even when there's, as, as, as someone's leading, nobody can have a my way or the highway mentality because it destroys unity. We all have to defer to one another, which moves to that next unity killer, getting angry easily. Some of the, one modern translation says that love is not touchy. You know, we haven't done any group projects in a while because uh, of COVID, so we haven't done anything big. The last group project we did was when we uh, had the 125-year uh, celebration and the 45-year, and it was a huge blessing. But oftentimes, I've noticed over my time in the church, when, when, when church folks come together for a big group project, that's when some of this stuff comes to the forefront. Folks who demand their own way, who don't work well in groups, and when they don't get their way, then they get very touchy and easily angered. And sometimes, sometimes they'll just go pout in the corner, which leads to the next unity-killing quality. They start keeping a ledger of all their wrongs. I remember, someone might say, you know, I remember, I remember 10 years ago when I told you guys how to set up the basement. I told you how to decorate the church. I told you how to plan that men's gathering and you didn't listen. If you think I'm going to help now, no way. I'll come, but I'm not helping. Keeping that ledger going and going and going. The solution for all of us isn't, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and his name and his glory and his kingdom. It's about representing him and being unified and deferring to one another so others around us see our love and know that we're disciples of the Lord Jesus. So instead of all of these, the negative qualities that are related to love, not envying, not boasting, not being arrogant, not being rude, not seeking its own, not being irritable, not being resentful, the, the antonyms or the opposites of those words are the words like this. Instead of being envious, God would want us through Christ to be content and even generous. Instead of boasting, we need to be humble. Instead of arrogant, we need to be modest and gentle. Instead of rude, we need to be courteous and polite. Instead of seeking our own, we need to seek the will of others. Instead of being irritable, we need to be agreeable. And instead of being resentful, we need to be pleasant and not bitter. It's all part of God giving us the grace and helping us to put on Christ. We can't leave out verse 6 very briefly. doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love never winks and just pushes aside sin. Remember, that was written. this is written to the church at Corinth. And, and they had allowed sin to dominate it. They did, in fact, rejoice at wrongdoing. And it wasn't love. Love calls us to rejoice in the truth that God has called us to, to purity and to holiness. And, and this unifies us because the Scripture is given as a standard to live by. And as we conform to that standard in life and doctrine, the truth, we have unity. And then those final five, the, the NIV, those final five, has the best translation, I think. 
where, where it says love always protects, love always trusts, love always hopes, love always perseveres, and love never fails. One commentator, I think, explains this perfectly. He says, love protects by concealing what is displeasing in another and doesn't drag it out into the pitiless light of public scrutiny. Love keeps secrets. Not keeping those kinds of secrets um, leads to disunity. Love always trusts, points to the quality that is ever ready to allow for circumstances and to see the best in others. I'm glad that he goes on to say this. It doesn't mean love is gullible, but that it does not think the worst and it's ready to give the benefit of the doubt. We live in such a cynical culture, such a suspicious culture, and I include myself in that. And here, unless there's strong reason not to, giving other believers the benefit of the doubt, love always trusts. Love always hopes. That's that forward look. It's the confidence that looks to the ultimate triumph by the grace of God. You're being perfected. I'm being perfected. We're all being perfected till the day of Christ Jesus, and we have tremendous hope in that because God is working in all of us to conform us into his image and to help us to love more. And then it always perseveres. It brings that thought of steadfastness. It's the endurance of the soldier who's in the thick of the battle, and he continues to battle vigorously. And then love never fails. What a wonderful final statement in regards to union in the church that when we drape all of that Paul has just said on top of everything else, we will not fail to be a unified group of believers. Now, clearly, some of these qualities are evident here at Grace Fellowship in, in some of our interactions, and we're grateful for that. And we can always excel still more. We can always grow in some of these other areas. Putting on love is putting on Jesus. And putting on Jesus is living out 1 Corinthians 13 over on top of all that we're doing already. And this is what promotes harmony um, amongst one another. So the unsaved world around us will know that we, in fact, are followers of Christ. So ultimately, we can point them to him. But Paul's not done here. You think that would be enough already? He's already explained to put off and put on. He's already explained what to put off and put on, and then he explains to put love on top of everything else, but then he's still not done. He's got one last line of defense for us to have unity in the church, and that's in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now when I first read this, I thought he was just talking about tranquility. Peace of Christ rule in your heart, I'm thinking, okay, be peaceful in Christ. Rest in Christ. Don't worry, Christ has this, so just by the grace of God, live in peace, live in tranquility. But this is not what it means. Now, this is so important. I've been rambling on here for about 35, 40 minutes, and, and, and I, I just need you to, to wake up, take a deep breath, and pay attention. If, if, you don't, if we don't get this, then everything else I've said so far uh, is fairly meaningless. This is very important. The word rule is the key here. The word rule is a term that describes the work of an umpire at the, at the Olympic Games. And from there, it came to mean order or control. So Paul uses it of the peace 
which settles strife in the church and maintains its unity. So what is it that settles strife and maintains unity? Paul says it's the peace of Christ. It's umpiring, it's ordering, it's controlling us. So when you go back to Colossians 1.20, we know the Prince of Peace, Jesus, established peace between us and God. He reconciled us to God through the blood of his cross. And it's this peace that we have with God through Christ that's the controlling factor for everything we do. That's what's supposed to rule us. And when you turn up to Colossians 2.14, since my record of debt was canceled along with all of its legal demands by Jesus being nailed to the cross so I have peace with God, that is what's supposed to rule me and control me. So the big question then is, how can I keep a record of debts for anyone against me since God has canceled mine through Christ? And since Jesus gave up all of his rights to save me so I could have peace with God, how can I insist on my own way? And since Jesus didn't revile back to those who reviled him, and he submitted to his sufferings on my behalf, then how can I ever be touchy and so easily angered? See, it's the peace of Christ is a direct reference to all that he's done to save us and to reconcile us to God. And, that, and what Paul's saying is, if you've been truly reconciled to God, then your life is ruled by him. And that's what gives you the grace to put off and to put on and to live and love like the Lord Jesus, and to function as one body and be thankful. You see, at the end of the day, our unity in Christ has nothing to do with us agreeing on everything. I've said this before. We're not talking about doctrine. Remember, we all come from different social and economic and religious and ethnic and educational backgrounds. We're all so different, and we're all works in progress. And he's conforming all of us into the image of Christ. And there are some things that all of us will see differently than others. Again, not doctrinal differences. But you know, it's our, our, those differences should never divide us. What divides churches, what divides people, isn't those differences, it's our responses to one another divide us. It's always our responses. It's always our actions if we're not putting on love. So if Paul's final plea is, when you've experienced peace with God through Christ, by the very nature of what's happened to you, you should now be a peacemaker, not a divider. Salvation should have changed you. Having peace with God, the peace of God ruling your heart, brings you into this new family, into this new kingdom with brothers and sisters in Christ from various backgrounds and from all walks of life. And now you're part of his body and he's the head and he rules and, and he reigns. So it's not about you and it's not about me. It's always about him. And you're glad and grateful and thankful because you were alienated and now you're reconciled. You were hostile and now you're friends. You were on your way to hell in a crisis eternity and he reconciled you and now you owe him everything because 
He's given you peace through Christ. And it's the peace that he established in your heart that now is to rule everything you do. So you can be patient. And you can be kind. And you can forgive offenses. And you have died to envy. And you're no longer a braggart. And you don't think too highly of yourself. And your manners have changed. You're no longer a barbarian. You work better in groups. You defer to others. You aren't as irritable and touchy as you once were. And you threw away that ledger of, uh, that, that you're keeping track of all the people that have hurt you and sinned against you. And you love the truth and are long-suffering toward others and are becoming more trusting and have tremendous hope for the future. And you won't give up because God is working in and through you. And it's by living a Christ-like life that unity is established and maintained in the church. And you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And this will produce an incredible oneness with others and create a thankfulness that will be evident to all. And even as we get ready to sing our final song, uh, you, you can't get away from that by just understanding Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. That's what Paul's saying for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts to his glory. Let's pray.